Nobody understands what it's like to be a drug addict than another drug addict. It's funny how you become friends with people that you never thought you would ever be friends with. When I would stop and think when I was by myself, it felt like I had this cold knife twisting in my gut that I had failed, I'd done everything wrong, I was a terrible father, a terrible husband. From ZMB Media and Jewish Community Services, this is Hooked. Stories of loss, love, and most importantly, hope, as told by recovering drug addicts, family members, and friends. I'm Howard Resnick, Manager of Prevention Education at JCS. In this episode, you'll hear from three recovering addicts who have long-term recovery. All have volunteered to share their experiences with us and are not clients of Jewish Community Services. In this series, we've addressed many aspects of addiction. We've heard stories from those who've lost parents, children, significant others to addictions, and we've heard from a few folks themselves with a number of years in recovery. In my 40 or so years working with addicts, I found that one of the most powerful tools for getting and staying sober is surrounding yourself with others who are aspiring to do the same, one day at a time. In this episode, I sat down with a number of folks with rather long-term recovery, 13 years, one fellow with 30 plus years, and I asked each of them to share how it was that they managed to maintain their sobriety for such a long time. As far as the long-term recovery aspect, I didn't know when I got to my first 12-step meeting that I was going to be here for anything more than that meeting, if I ever was really not going to use again. I don't think that's why I got into recovery. It's just that I was out of ideas and decided that I would try taking someone's suggestion and taking suggestions in general was not something I ever did well, but I thought at age nearly 33, I might give, you know, give it a shot. And, um, and it's not that I paid so much attention to the things that were said in the first meeting I went to because I, I sort of hid in the back of the room with a loaded 38 in the back of my pants because I was gonna be in a room full of drug addicts and I you know, knew they were dangerous, but. Um, I probably had a better chance of shooting myself in the foot, but um, what, what I experienced was not hearing them saying, you know, go to meetings, get a sponsor, you know, do step work, get involved in service. Um, what I, it's what I felt in that people's, people were smiling people seemed happy that they were having fun, uh, that they also looking down, I saw they had new sneakers too. Um, and they were, I couldn't really catch them going out into the parking lot after the meeting getting high. So I knew there had to be something to this and it was mostly just the feeling. And there were some people in the room that were like, Eddie, welcome. We've been saving a seat for you because these were people who used to crawl up my lawn and buy drugs from me, you know, years before. So um, uh, I didn't know that I was going to be here 30 years later. I didn't even know I was going to be there the next week, the next year, but it never felt like punishment. I started having fun that like the people that I used to hang out with, they, you know, weren't having fun, weren't really doing much of anything. They couldn't even keep a roll of toilet paper in their bathroom. So like these people that I was, you know, exposed to here, 
were um, felt a lot better to be around. Nobody understands what it's like to be a drug addict than another drug addict. Um, I, you know, I to this day, I still do the same things that I did for the last 28 years. I go to meetings regularly. I have a sponsor. I work the steps. I. You know, I, I do service. I do everything that I'm doing because I take what I have and I call, my, I call addiction a disease. And my disease needs medication. And my medication is going to the meetings and doing everything that was told to me. And I don't want to stop going. And what I do every day to this day, there's still two or three men I talk to in recovery every day. Um, I, and it's just, uh, as Eddie said, when I first came around, I mean, people were actually happy and they were having fun. And towards the end of my addiction, I mean, I've never met an addict who didn't have an intimate relationship with their bathroom and be by themselves. And I got to be with people and I got to have fun. And I also had the, I had the benefit of, I was married and I had two small children. And uh, I did originally, I will say that I got clean for my wife and my children, but I stayed clean for me. I'm an addict named Steven. Um, I got clean in, in Florida, in a different area than here, um, in a treatment center. When I came into the rooms, uh, I would have to say that I was homeless at that point because I didn't have a home to go back to. Um, I was married. I had twin boys. I have twin boys that were 16 at the time. And so from my place went right into the treatment center. I felt like I was better than everyone at the time um, because I married up and lifestyle was different and I would not lay on the sheets that they gave me. I had to go out to the store and buy sheets because I would not put my head or put my body on, that, on those sheets that everybody else slept on. But then I came to realize that everyone was just like me. Everyone had the same feelings and um, pretty much problems that I was going through. And um, then being in the rooms, yes, they were smiling. They were happy. I started connecting with people that I wanted to be with. I wanted to be around. And it's funny how you become friends with people that you never thought you would ever be friends with because they didn't look like you or act like you, but they had the same problem as you. So we all are together. And the connection with everyone in the rooms, I feel were really strong and working the steps and, and um, being around the right people and staying is real helpful. So my question is how in the world did you put so much recovery together? I mean, people struggle and struggle and relapse and relapse, and that's all part of the process. Um, how many years clean? 30. Three zero. Yes. How many years clean? In a row. In a row. <laughs> yeah. 12 years. In a row. In a row. Almost 28. Almost 28 years. Um, how, how do you do it? I'll reiterate, it was never punishment. 
So you enjoy going to the meetings? The, they often talk about in early recovery, you get what's called a pink cloud. Uh, and I wouldn't say the whole 30 years has been any kind of pink cloud, but I had more fun in my first year of recovery, uh, regardless of coming in in debt and uh, splitting up with my uh, first wife and dealing with divorce and dealing with um, joint custody arrangements and things of that nature that would seem like in some respect, probably my first six to nine months when I would stop and think when I was by myself, it felt like I had this cold knife twisting in my gut that I had failed, I'd done everything wrong, I was a terrible father, a terrible husband, a terrible person. Um, but by going to meetings on a regular basis, it was sort of like that um, show Cheers, where when you walked into the bar, when you walked like, in the yes. meeting, like, you know, the first meeting, the time I would go to a specific meeting, you know, I would look around, I wouldn't know anyone. And, but, you know, you'd kind of nod to this one and nod to that one. And the next week when you came back, those same people were like, oh, they would nod, you know, they saw you the week before, they see you're serious enough to make it another week. And by going to meet, I probably went to meetings every day for about five years. And, you know, you get to know people. There were some people that I had grown up with, people who I had used with, um, people that uh, were just nice to me. And I couldn't figure out why. So I figured I had to at least stick around to find out what's going on with these people because it was around the time, like at the end of like my first meeting, they passed around this basket and I'm like, oh, it's one of those cults and they want my money, but oh, I'm, 40 grand in debt, so until I pay that off, they can't really get anything out of me. Um, but I came in, um, and what was hard for me to think that I had a problem was that I still had my home, still had my cars, still had my kids, still um, had a business. Um, and I wouldn't say I had money in the bank, but I still had those things. But it was sort of like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree with one little leaf barely hanging on by a thread. So. Um, uh, it was good for me to see other people that didn't have to be, you know, homeless and jobless and uh, living in crack houses or whatever to make them willing to come in. It was about how I felt about me, how defective I felt. And that I learned that it was like this shame that I felt was that I was inherently defective and I couldn't be fixed. So I wasn't sure if it was going to work for me because I thought I couldn't be, I was beyond being fixed. Wow. So it gave you some hope? That maybe, 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 maybe. I just was, I felt more comfortable there. The noise in my head quieted down more than it ever had for that hour of every meeting. And after the meeting, there was people even, there were people even willing to listen to me as I rambled on about my mother this and the business this and my kids that and my ex this and like, oh, poor me, I've got all these problems. And they would say, oh, you're right where you're supposed to be. Keep coming back. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. But like they would put up with me and say, come on, we're going to get some coffee or we're going to get something to eat. And by the time I get home, I was so exhausted, I would just pass out. So. Didn't have time to get in trouble. Anybody resonate with that? Yeah. Well, it's like what Eddie was saying. You know, one of the things I always say, and I truly believe, there are days now that, you know, I work I work full time, that I just not like to go home and not go to a meeting, but I've never gone to a meeting and left worse than when I got there. 
you know, and it's funny what Eddie was saying is so true that, you know, these last 28 years beyond my wildest dreams have come true. But I mean, you know, I think my life has been easy, but I've been through, you know, I've been through my mother passing away. I've been through surviving bladder cancer and having a stroke and all these things that I minimize. But I've one thing that's good about a meeting is no, there's nothing that I've I've have there's nothing that's happened to me that hasn't happened to somebody else. And talking about an early recovery, because I again when I first came around, I was going to meetings every day, and I was going to the meeting. I was going to dinner before the meeting, and ice cream after the meeting, and I was working, and it was great. But I had a wife who also worked full time, and we had two small kids, a 13 month old and a three year old at home. And I was so happy that, you know, here I am, my life, and I would say, wait a second, what about me? I have a life. And I said, don't you understand that if I don't keep doing this, I'm going to use, and you have to become, you have to understand what I'm going through, and this is on me, that, you know, you have to go to Al-Anon, you have to do this, you have to do all these other things. And then one day at a meeting, I had a friend who I knew who was talking about how his wife didn't understand him and blah, blah, blah. And then he said something, and he said, he had to become understanding of what he put his wife through. And wow. So I had to become understanding that for the first six years of my marriage, my wife was married to a drug addict. And she does work. So I didn't have to go to dinner before the meeting. I didn't have to always go for ice cream afterwards. I could go to meetings during the day. I had to become understanding. And, you know, recovery has taught me how to be a better husband, how to be a better friend, how to be a better son, how to be a better parent. It has taught me all the things of how to become better. So to say what keeps me going is, and I need for that person to come in the relapse. I know that sounds horrible. I need to see somebody struggling because I don't have to be like that. When somebody passes away from this disease, it's devastating, it's sad, it's horrible, I cry. But by the grace of God, that doesn't have to be me. I can learn from them. I can learn from their mistakes. So. I will say this, and I know Eddie will agree with this. For the first couple years of my recovery, I thought drugs were my problem. After a couple years of recovery, I realized Mark was my problem and dealing with Mark issues. And another word for addiction is the disease of the feelings. I used anytime I was happy, sad, glad, angry, lonely, or bored. So when I had these feelings, so I have a disease of the feelings also. Gotcha. You were, I agree you were, with that also. Yeah. Um, I agree with the... Uh, with the, my 12 years of, of staying clean, I didn't want to live that life ever again. I didn't want to put myself in that situation any longer, close to death. And, and watching others going through that and seeing every day the struggle that they have, I don't want that either. But I, um, I have to say in the 12 years, it has been a pink cloud, except for this year. This year, I've had my hardest year. And I don't know why it had to be this year, but, and I'm, I'm making it through. And, I, and there's no reason for me to go back. I don't, I, I, it's not for me. I know that my, my beliefs are gonna get me through and my higher power, so. Mm -hmm. So help us understand this business of it's a spiritual program. When I first, being Jewish, mm -hmm. You know, I, I always thought, you know, I had no real, I went to Hebrew school, but it was forced down my throat. I had a father who was, you know, physically and mentally abusive to me. 
And so when I started using, my definition of the high holidays was to be high all day. So when I first came into the rooms and I heard this higher power, I did not have a belief in God. But then I realized my higher power became the rooms of the 12 steps. And then one day I would hear somebody like Eddie in a meeting say something. So he couldn't be God, but God, my higher power was speaking through him. And then years later, there was a guy who since passed away. His name was Michael, and he used to say his higher power was his gut. When you're doing something good, you're touch telling you're doing something good, and you're doing something bad. But that worked for a while. And then when my daughter's about 17 years ago got Bob Mitzvah, I started going to synagogue on Friday nights. And all of a sudden, I started believing in this spiritual who I choose to call God as my higher power. And I love having that. I don't, I'm not religious. I'm proud of being Jewish, but that it's the religious, the spiritual knowing, as, as, as Steve was just saying, the spirituality of knowing that my higher power, who I choose to call God, is going to be with me, is going to help me through this. And I've also learned that things aren't going to get better in Mark's time, but it'll get better in my higher power's time. Pretty amazing, yeah. So the um, spirituality for me, when I probably first got into recovery, I sort of pictured this uh, old guy with a long beard on top of a mountain meditating and you know saying um all day long. And um, what I probably didn't understand at first was that it was a, although this is a program of self-discovery, it was a program that I was told if I stuck around and did some things that were suggested, I could possibly get comfortable in my own skin. And that was probably the spiritual awakening for me is that like I could be comfortable being me for very short periods of time, then a little bit longer periods of time, and the periods of chaos in my life became shorter and the periods of peace and calm in my life became longer because I was doing things to change. And um, so that, you know, spirituality wasn't, you know, a burning bush. It wasn't any specific event. Uh, It was just being willing to slow down enough and not have to figure out everything because I was the guy who had to have all the ideas and all the answers to find the party, to find the girls, to find the money, to find the drugs, whatever. Um, And when I got here, I was out of answers, but I was like empty. I had this hollow, empty feeling when I took the drugs out where there was no drugs left. And so it's like, now what? All I have is this sick, horrible feeling in me, so what what do I replace it with? And by just showing up for um, going to meetings and being involved with the program, it distracted me enough to become someone that I could stand. I remember asking someone in fairly early recovery, it's like, you know, how do you become someone that you can look up to, that you can respect? Because I never thought I was someone that anyone should look up to or respect or be a mentor or you know be someone's role model and here I have these children and now I've got to figure out how to become some kind of role model and the answers were always so simple I would get angry and it was like a day at a time you live your life like someone that you would look up to and I hate to say it but 10 years later I looked in the mirror and realized I had become that person but you know it was 10 years later 
Um, some people, it might happen in six months, it might happen in a couple years, but um, it was definitely something that I earned by sticking around um, because I was desperate and scared um, to go back to living the way I was living, which was hiding in the basement when everybody went to sleep with, um, with cocaine and vodka and thinking people were crawling along the lawn looking in my below ground windows and hearing voices and, you know, just being crazy, feeling crazy inside. So, so a spiritual awakening was not feeling crazy inside anymore. The noise was all in my head, real right. or not. Right. It was all in my head that like there was, everything was wrong with me. Right. Everything I thought was wrong, everything I did was wrong, my mm -hmm. house was wrong, my wife was wrong, the car was wrong, the business was wrong, my, what I did in college was wrong. I'm just, you know, and I couldn't tell anybody that. One thing that came up in the, in the other room, you started to verbalize that, oh, there, um, not everybody recovers through 12 steps. Not everybody finds their way to sobriety. Um, so judging if someone just only listened to right, us so here. Right, so the three of us here have found our journey in a 12-step recovery. Yeah. Were there lots of other, are there lots of other paths? I, I'm sure there are, but it's like, for me, it was never broken. It never felt like punishment. I really think I've had fun mm -hmm. and joy. It's like they say we come in with, you know, anger, resentment and fear. And, you know, what we're striving for is to, you know, find the other side. And I was always told there was this desert that we have to travel through because anger, resentment, fear is so comfortable, is so familiar, lived in it my whole life, that it was actually scary to move to, you Happy, know, joyous and free. Happy, joyous and free. Like, <laughs> what do I do when I get there? I don't know the rules right. in Happy, Joyous and Free. Mm. I know the rules of anger, resentment, and fear. You know, you say that because even to this day, it's like, I still like, I still feel like, you know, if something like, if somebody calls my name, hey, Mark, what I do wrong? Bye. You know, what I do wrong is, you know, but the only thing I can add to this is that number one, I know people that say I've stopped going to meetings or I don't go to meetings. Uh, you know, they found God or they found this and whatever works. But I also know people that stop drinking and stop using. They might be dry, they might be sober, but they're not recovering. All the same, what with the benefit of the 12-step fellowship is exactly, it's taught me to be happy, joyous, and free. And as I was saying before, my wife would like to move to Florida year-round, but the friends and things that I've made for the last 28 years, I would be so sad. To, I mean, I look forward to, you know, maybe not going to the meetings, but on Saturday mornings, a bunch of us meet for breakfast and we do all the things and just hanging out and we have fun now. We, you know, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, last year celebrated his 20th anniversary at the, uh, what was it, the Rift Tower Top and there was maybe 100 people in recovery. There was no liquor there and we had the best time. You know, it's it's like I don't need liquor. I don't need drugs. I mean, I, I you know, I, I am, I. it's so peaceful not to have to worry on a, cold day to wear up where am I going to cop right now or you know or what am I going to have to do to go get it and it's I don't have that today but but if there was one key about like staying and getting long-term recovery uh, I've heard it described as like well staying in the middle 
Like if I don't surround myself with mm-hmm. people, other people in the program as a support network, surprisingly to me, still to this day, a huge part of my support network is my father and father-in-law. You know, those were authority figures growing up. You know, I'm not gonna use them, but like they're like, don't make any major decisions without speaking to three people, my father, my father-in-law, sponsors, somebody in my network, but it's about staying in the middle. If I'm surrounded by going to meetings, uh, having a sponsor, being of service to others, things like that, um, as corny as that sounds, um, that makes me feel good, that makes me safe. That's how I stay here. When I get out of the middle of the circle and I stop communicating with those people, it's those, it's that beer, it's that pretty drink, it's that you know smell of the weed at the concert. It's like, hey, where's mine? You know, I'm okay, I can handle it, you know? It's that, you know, I'm, it, sometimes it's just, you know, the noise in my head and if I'm alone with the noise in my head, I'm in danger. So that's why I have 30 years of a foundation that says when I'm thinking crazy like that or crazy for me, I've got to talk to my sponsor. I've got to talk to my wife. I've got to talk to someone in my network, somebody to get me out of that noise in my head, which got me there needing 30 years of recovery. And if you have close enough, a close enough network and a group of people that that care about you and love you, um, if they don't see you at a meeting mm-hmm. and you're not calling them regularly like you normally did, they're calling you all the time just until you pick up and they're not giving up. I will also say that I would like to say that after 28 years, I don't have thoughts of using. I still once in a while, if I'm having a bad day, I'd love to eat 20 Valium. I just don't act out on those thoughts. I mean, I still once in a while you know, now that marijuana is becoming legal and all this stuff, and I see all these TV shows and all these pictures of the marijuana, it looks great. I just know I choose not to, but I do still have thoughts, but I go back to, as Eddie was saying, you know, being in the middle. That foundation of knowing what to do and making the phone calls, and Steve just said it too, knowing that, like, if I don't show up for somewhere, I'm going to get that phone call. Or I'm going to get, and I do that too, and we all do that. We reach out, we call each other, and it's very important because I have a disease that's going to stay with me one day of my, the rest of my life. If I have, if I had diabetes and I don't take my insulin, I'm going to get sick. If I stop going to meetings and stop doing what I've been doing for the last 28 years, I don't trust myself. If I want to use, it's always because I don't want to feel something. Right. Or somebody hurt my little baby feelings that I still have, and I know if I medicate it in some way, so for now, maybe it's some chocolate or a, a coffee or a piece of cake or something like that seems to resolve it, you know, something to fill myself up with, but you know, it's all just because I, I don't want to feel something that's uncomfortable. So you know, that's the solution that I know I have a choice and, and a solution, and that's just to share it with somebody. Was it pain shared is pain lessened? And, uh, you know, I just met Steve, I knew Eddie, but now because of our because of our relationship and because of something like this, I feel like we're now you know, we're now friends. Mm-hmm. We'll see each other, we hug, we have that common bond. And this gentleman I've never met before an hour ago, but he knows more about me than ninety percent of the people that know me and I know that if I need something, even though 
Steve does not know me and Steve is busy. I know nothing about Steve that if I had called him with a problem, he'd be there to help me. At two o'clock in the morning, he'd answer. Absolutely, and he'd be, and he'd be over. That's what's the benefit of recovery. You do things for other people, and, and I just know now I have another friend forever in Steve. We just heard from three gentlemen with long-term recovery who have used the 12-step fellowship and the 12 steps as their primary means for achieving sobriety. Clearly not everyone uses the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, and we encourage people to find what truly works for them. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We invite you to listen to the other episodes in the series. If you or someone you love is battling addiction, you're not alone. There are resources that can help. Visit our website, ifiknew.org, Click on the Get Help tab for listings of local Baltimore resources, as well as leading national ones. These podcasts are brought to you by Jewish Community Services in Baltimore, an agency of the Associated. We are grateful for their support, as well as the generosity of other funders who make JCS prevention education programming possible.